Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're planning on writing a screenplay, you probably need to know what every other scriptwriter has learned. And that is, if you're going to cause people to care about what's happening on the screen, you have to build drama into your story. Those who study literature and movies will tell you that every good story must have a protagonist and an antagonist, must have a hero and a villain, must have the good guys and the bad guys. And even if you're not a writer, life is no different. So you need to know that there's drama in life. Though life can at times be a comedy and full of laughter, at its very core, it's a drama. We see that even in the life of one of our heroes, Paul. He was surrounded by antagonists, and in chapter 11, he's going to describe their role and point them out to us. When I was a kid, I grew up watching the old westerns, and westerns were simple because the good guys wore white hats and the bad guys wore black hats. Today, movies can be more complicated. In a a good suspense movie, you're really not sure who's who sometimes. And that's more consistent with real life because the bad guys don't always wear black hats. I don't know if I ever have sat down and watched the closing credits of a movie. Well, maybe Schindler's List. I was so emotionally traumatized I couldn't get up. But usually when the closing credits roll, we walk out of the theater or we turn off the Blu-ray or our DVD player. When the drama of life, you and I need to read the credits to see who the characters are, to see who is who, to see who is the protagonist and who is the antagonist. And it may very well surprise you In verses 1 to 15 of chapter 11, it's kind of like the credits. Paul is going to tell us who is playing what role. And in doing so, he uses some analogies that lend themselves to movie titles. The first in verses 1 to 4 is Father of the Bride. Notice verse 2. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. There's the picture. It's a wedding scene. You've got the bride ready to be presented to the groom. Now, before we get into the details, let's read the credits. Who is the groom? Well, he tells us it's Christ. Who is the bride? You. Who is presenting the bride? Who is the father of the bride? It's Paul. And who is the antagonist? Well, let's look a little more closely. Starting in verse 1, he says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. Now, why does Paul call this foolishness? Well, slide over to verse 17, and he makes it more clear. 
What I am saying, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting, since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. In order to defend himself against the accusations made against him, Paul, in essence, is boasting about himself, and he's not comfortable with that. It really goes against his grain, and he so, so he says, this shouldn't be, this is foolishness. It's never the business of an apostle, or for that matter, any Christian, to praise him or her self. But ta- Paul takes that stance here. Why does he take this stance? Because he knows that their attack against him is really an attack against his message. And because he knows the threat that is aimed at the church at Corinth, and because he really cares about them. And that's what we see in verse 2. But I am afraid, I'm sorry, verse 2, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Paul says, I'm jealous for you. You say, well, I thought being jealous was wrong. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is not jealous. Well, there's a big difference between being jealous of someone and being jealous for someone. Paul says, I am jealous for you. And he specifically calls it a godly jealousy. It's the kind of jealousy God has. In the first commandment, God said, you shall have no other gods before me, for I am a what? Jealous God. There is a godly jealousy, and Paul is showing that kind of jealousy here as he's concerned for the Corinthians. Godly jealousy shows up when one partner in a marriage relationship is committed to the other, and the other is not committed in the same way. And that's the analogy Paul chooses to use here. He uses the analogy of a husband who's totally committed to his wife but the wife is wandering away. Now this is a familiar picture because throughout Scripture we're told that we, the church, are the bride of Christ. And in this picture, Paul is the father of the bride. You say, well, how did he get to be the father of the bride? Well, because he led the people in the church at Corinth to the Lord. So he is foreseeing himself as their spiritual father, having led them to the Lord, presenting them to Christ at the wedding described in Revelation chapter 19. And so the picture is of us as believers, we are engaged to Christ. Ultimately, the wedding is going to happen when Jesus comes back and Paul says, because I brought you to Christ, I'm jealous for you because I want to present you to Christ. Now I want you to notice two phrases here that are very important. The first is one husband. He says, for I betrothed you to one husband. Just as the marriage bond is exclusive, our relationship with Jesus Christ is exclusive. And Paul is jealous of anyone or anything that would interfere with our commitment to Christ. And then the second phrase I want you to see is that phrase, pure virgin. He says, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. You say, Dan, wait a minute. This is where the analogy breaks down. I know my past. 
I know what I've done. I know what I continue to do. And that's not me. When the wedding comes, I'm not going to be wearing white. The only thing in my house that is pure and virgin is my olive oil. Well, you may feel like you are anything but beautiful and pure and a virgin bride. But the reality is that when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that's what he makes you to be. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Jesus has taken me from where I was and given me a complete makeover so that now I am holy and blameless and pure and in his eyes, a virgin. Now he's writing to the church at Corinth. Here's what he said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6, 10 and 11. He described the church as adulterers, robbers, drunkards, homosexuals, slanders, and swindlers. That's not very complimentary. Then he said this, but you were washed, but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is, apart from Christ, I am ugly in my sin. But in Jesus Christ, I am washed, and I am pure, and I have his righteousness. I have his purity. I am made beautiful in his sight. Do you think about yourself as engaged to Jesus? That's the analogy in Scripture. We are engaged to Christ and waiting for him to come back, waiting for the wedding day. I do a lot of weddings. One of my favorite parts of the wedding is when those back doors open up and the bride comes through. She's been, she's had her hair worked on all day. She's wearing the most amazing dress she could buy. She's got her makeup on. She's got everything going with the jewelry and everything. And she walks in, and I love to glance over at the groom because he's just welling up. Wow. You know, sometimes I don't recognize her. I'm like, is this the girl that... Is that her? You know. Can you imagine if the doors opened and she's not ready to come in? The door's open and she's back there on her cell phone or texting an old boyfriend. That's not a good situation. Jesus Christ is coming back for our wedding day. And Paul says, I'm jealous for you because I want you to be ready. I want you to be ready. When the doors open, I want you to be ready to receive the groom. Jesus Christ. Now what might keep us from being ready? What would distract us from Christ? Look at verse 3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, 
Your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Who's Paul afraid of? The serpent. That's Satan. There's the antagonist in the story. He has a track record of deceiving people that goes all the way back to the beginning. And notice what his target is. He is targeting your minds. We saw that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. The fortresses in this battle are speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of Christ. And we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He is attacking your mind. And what's his goal? He wants to lead you astray from simple devotion to Christ. Literally, that phrase would read, from the simplicity of Christ. Let me tell you something. Christianity is simple. It is Jesus Christ. It is simply being devoted to Him and Him alone. And Satan loves to draw us away from that. And how does he do that? He does that by making it more complicated. Paul alludes to Satan's activity in the garden. And I want to take you back there this morning. I want you to keep your finger in 2 Corinthians 11 and go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. I want to show you something here you may not have seen before. Genesis chapter 2. Verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. There's God's command. You can eat from any tree in the garden except this one tree. And if you eat from it, you will die. Now we come to chapter 3, and what do we read? Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Here comes the serpent. Here comes Satan. And how does he respond? In craftiness. And what I want you to see here is that in this simple conversation with Eve, Satan introduces four philosophies. Four philosophies in their seed element that are still his lies today. The first is liberalism. Notice the first words he says to her. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said? What's he doing? He's planning a doubt. Did God really say this? What is that? That's liberalism. Did God really say that or did he not? Liberalism is established right here in Genesis chapter 3. Second philosophy is legalism. Notice what he says yet next. Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, what did God say? God said you can't eat from one tree. Satan says you can't eat from any tree. He's adding to what God said. That's legalism. Now, notice Eve's response in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, 
But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Did God say you couldn't touch it? No. But she adds to what God said. So Satan introduces legalism and she jumps right on it. Yeah, he said we couldn't even touch it when God didn't say that. Liberalism is established. Legalism is established. The third philosophy that's established is rationalism. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. God said you'll die. He says you won't. What's he using? Rationalism. God would never do that. God would never send anybody to hell. All you have to do is think about it. Would God do that? Absolutely not. What is that? Rationalism. Liberalism, legalism, rationalism. Fourthly, humanism. Look at verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's just trying to restrict you from being all that you can be. If you want to realize your full potential, you need to get away from God because you've got all the resources in and of yourself to be like God. That's humanism. So there are the four philosophies introduced in the garden, and guess what? They haven't changed today. The same lies are being propagated today. We hear liberalism today. We hear people saying, God really didn't say this. When I was in college here at Southeast, I took an Old Testament class taught by two professors who were actually pastors here in town. They were teaching on the Old Testament, and I thought, this is going to be great. So I came in there, sat down, listened, and they said, Moses couldn't write. thought about that a minute. I pulled my Bible out, and I looked in the Old Testament, and I found a Scripture that said God spoke to Moses and Moses wrote it down. So I raised my hand. And I said, you're saying Moses can't write, and the Bible says he wrote. That man looked at me and said, that's an error. Needless to say, I dropped the class. But that's not the point. The point is, that's liberalism. God didn't really say that. Legalism. That's to say God said more than he said. And you can find people presenting legalism all over the place. You've got to have Jesus plus something else. How about rationalism? Hear people all the time saying, God's too good to punish sin. My God would never do that. Your God... Where's your God created in your mind? It's what you think. It's rationalism. And fourthly is humanism. You don't need God. You have all the resources within you. You need to just find the God within and let him blossom. Satan is a formidable enemy. He attacks our minds. He leads us astray. And Paul is especially concerned about the church at Corinth because they're an easy target. Notice what he says in verse 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. What's he saying? You're gullible. 
You're easily swayed. If somebody comes along preaching something different, you receive it beautifully. They were open-minded. Today, that's the highest attribute you can have. People say, I'm open-minded. Open-minded is a dangerous thing. God says something. If God has revealed his will, you need to be closed-minded. You need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The Corinthians were not doing that, and so they were easy targets for the enemy. Now, these men weren't walking in with a sign that said, different Jesus. Because Satan is crafty. He is deceitful. They were talking about Jesus. They would say, yes, Jesus is the Christ. But what they would do is is they would take away from Jesus possibly his deity, so he's no longer God, or his purpose to say, well, he really didn't come to go to the cross. He came just to give us a nice example so that we could follow in his footsteps. They took away his purpose. They took away his message. Jesus really didn't say repent. Jesus didn't talk about hell. Jesus just said mushy words about love and shuffled along in his sandals. That's Jesus. See, they would present Jesus, but they would tear out of Jesus the things that make him Jesus. And then he says, you get a different spirit. Well, if you receive a different Jesus, you're going to get a different spirit. There are more spirits in this world than just the Holy Spirit. You can go today to New Age retreats and have all kinds of spiritual experiences. How do you know the Spirit of God? Emotions? No. Signs? No. Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We did miracles in your name, and Jesus is going to say what? I never knew you. How do you know the Spirit of God? Jesus said in John 14, 26, He, the Spirit, will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John 16, 30, He, the Spirit, will guide you into all the truth. John 16, 14, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for He shall take of mine and shall describe it to you. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, it says, No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit of God do? He exalts Jesus. He lifts up Jesus. So he says, somebody comes and they they preach a different Jesus, and they bring you a different spirit, and they preach a different gospel. What's a different gospel? It's complicated. If you hear somebody explain the gospel and it's complicated, it's not the gospel. The gospel is all about Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again, and he's exalted today. That's the gospel. It's not that complicated. A five-year-old can describe it to you. So Paul says, as the father of the bride, I'm afraid for you. I'm jealous for you because Satan is a crafty deceiver and you're an easy target. Second analogy is trial and error. 
Now, I didn't see this movie, but apparently no one else did because it bombed at the box office. But I like the title. It's about a guy who is a defense attorney who really isn't a defense attorney. My point here is that Paul is going to defend himself in these verses. And notice how he does so, beginning in verse 5. He says, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, or literally super apostles. This is a unique Greek word that means exceedingly beyond. They were saying about themselves, we are exceedingly beyond. We are bigger than life. And Paul says, even though they present themselves as being exceedingly beyond apostles, I am not in the least way inferior to them. Now, why did some in Corinth think that Paul was inferior? Why is he having to defend himself, and what is he having to defend himself against? Well, there are two primary accusations. We saw them back in chapter 10. In fact, in in chapter 10 and verse 10, it really captures both accusations He says, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. The two accusations against Paul is his speech is contemptible and he's not very impressive. He's meek. So he really takes on those two accusations here in defending himself. The first, they said his speech was contemptible. And he responds to that accusation in verse 6. Notice what he says. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. Maybe I am unskilled in speech, but I'm not unskilled in knowledge. What I like is Paul doesn't even seek to attempt or attempt to defend the accusation. They say he's not a very good preacher. He said, fine. I'm not a very good preacher. But the issue is not my speaking style. The issue is what I know. The issue is what God has revealed to me. The issue is my message. My delivery may be poor, but my content is rich because I'm speaking the truth. And then he confronts the second accusation that he's too meek. And he does so in verses 7 to 12. Notice verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Paul says, since when is humility a sin? I'm being treated like a wrongdoer because I humbled myself in order to exalt you. And how did he humble himself? He offered them the gospel without charge. Jesus established that principle in Matthew 10.10. The worker is worthy of his support. Here in the church at Corinth, Paul had willingly laid aside that privilege. You say, well, where did Paul get his money when he was in Corinth? Look at verse 8. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Now, obviously, this is tongue-in-cheek. What he's saying is, I received money from other churches while I was in Corinth as I was ministering to you. And I didn't receive anything from you. And then notice verse 9. Here's the example. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. 
For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. He's in Corinth. He's ministering. Where is he getting his money? He's getting his money from the churches in Macedonia so that he could make the boast, I did not receive anything from you, and I never will. Then look at verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Now, Achaia is the bigger area that Corinth is in, along with Athens and other cities. And he said, I use the same principle in this whole area. In fact, let me read a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Chapter 9 and verse 14, Paul says this, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. Paul says, my boast in Corinth is that I never took your money. Now, that was not a universal principle of Paul. He took money from other churches, but he chose not to do so in Corinth. Why not? Look at verse 11. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Now that implies to me that Satan actually used this act of Paul and flipped it around and made it a negative. There were some in Corinth who were saying, Paul won't take our money, so he obviously doesn't love us. Why did Paul not take their money? Notice verse 12. But what I am doing I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. My reason is to cut off the boasting of the false teachers. They were saying we're apostles. In fact, we're super apostles. They were saying we're just like Paul. And Paul says, well, if you want to be just like me, then come to Corinth and preach the gospel for free. How many false teachers preach the gospel for free? Never met one. Paul says, they want to line up beside me. If they want to be like me, have them prove it by not taking anything from the church at Corinth, just giving the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in answering his accusers, Paul actually points out the two ways you can evaluate a preacher. You want to know what it is? Two ways you evaluate a preacher. Number one, what he says. And number two, why he says it. What he says and why he says it. What is his message and what is his motive? Paul could say, my message is the truth of Christ, the gospel. And my motive is humble love. And that's where he rests his defense. And then the third movie is Scream. I never saw Scream. I guess I could have picked Friday the 13th or Halloween. I'm looking for a movie that the villain wears a mask in. Paul's counterparts are hailing themselves as super apostles. And in these few verses, Paul takes the mask off of them and shows us who they really are. These are very important verses for you to understand. Look at verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, 
disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They are false apostles. They claim to be apostles. In fact, they claim to be exceedingly beyond apostles, but Paul says in reality they are false, they are fake, they are bogus. In fact, the very word apostle means sent one. And Paul says they're not sent. And then he tells us they are deceitful workers. They're working. They are preaching, they are teaching, but they are deceitful. They are not doing the work of God. They have a separate agenda. And then he adds to that, and here's the mask. They are disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They dress the part. They look the part. They even learn the lines. But in reality, they are disguised and they are deceiving you. They look like apostles, they sound like apostles in the right setting, they even act like apostles, but they are doing Satan's work. You say, well, why would they do that? Look at verse 14. No wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. No wonder they're deceivers because they have a good teacher. Who's their teacher? Satan. Satan is a disguise artist, and his favorite disguise is an angel of light, and he's very good at it because that's who he used to be. He was Lucifer, dawn of the morning when he fell into sin. He goes back and disguises himself as an angel of light. Listen to me. If you want to find Satan, you're not going to find him in a red outfit with horns and a pitchfork. He doesn't disguise himself that way. He loves it if you think that's where he is. He is disguising himself as an angel of light, presenting a message of purity. That's his best disguise. And then notice verse 15. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Does Satan have servants? Does Satan have ministers? Yes. Who are they? Witches? Warlocks? No. He says they're going to be disguised as servants of righteousness. They're going to be disguised as servants of Christ. So where do you find servants of Satan disguising themselves as servants of righteousness today? In our pulpits. It's where they're at. I know a lot of Christians that are all upset about Halloween. I hear Christians say, we need to boycott Halloween. We need to, you know, it's, it's an awful thing day and they get all upset about it and there's a little to be upset about I mean people especially when people dress themselves like you know demons and different things and dress their kids up I mean there's there's a little bit to be concerned about but I'll tell you this 
Halloween is not the holiday I worry most about. In fact, Halloween is the one day when everybody's thinking, you know, at least we recognize that there's an evil person out there, Satan. I worry more about the other 364 days a year when we have what I would call inverted Halloween. When Satan dresses himself up as an angel of light, when his servants dress themselves up as servants of righteousness, those 364 other days when we have inverted Halloween, when darkness dresses up like light, that is a far greater threat to you and me. When Satan's most effective servants wear crosses, carry Bibles, stand up in pulpits, say wonderful, pious words that have incorporated in them the lies of Satan. That's his greatest deceit. Where is Satan espousing his philosophy of liberalism today? Where is he communicating the lie that he said to Eve, has God said this? Where is he doing that? Where is he standing up and saying this isn't true? In our pulpits. Back in 1985, they had what they called the Jesus Seminar they got together 200 biblical scholars and they spent six years studying the words of Jesus and asking the question, did Jesus really say this? After six years of studying the words of Jesus, here was their conclusion in 1991. The provocative Jesus seminar, this is out of the Los Angeles Times, the provocative Jesus seminar has concluded six years of voting on what the Jesus of history most likely said, ruling out about 80% of the words attributed to him in the Gospels and emerging with a picture of a prophet sage who told parables and made pithy comments. Their conclusion, these biblical scholars, is that only 20% of what Jesus said was actually said. Which 20%? the ones they like the most. Robert Fortna of Vassar College, one of the scholars, said, most scholars would tend to agree there's virtually nothing in the fourth gospel that goes back to Jesus. They took the gospel of John, just said, out with it. Why? Because at the end of the gospel of John, it says these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you might have life in his name. I'm sure he made Satan proud. Where do we hear liberalism espoused today? In our pulpits. Where do we hear legalism espoused today? Where do we find Satan saying to Eve, has God said you can't touch from any tree? In our pulpits. Analyze the doctrine of the majority of preachers in this country who aren't into liberalism And below their language, you will find that they are into legalism. 
Legalism is very simple. If I say to you, you have to have Jesus, and that's not the period in my sentence, I'm into legalism. If I have to say you have to believe in Jesus plus, that's legalism. Doesn't matter what it is. It's saying Jesus is not enough. And if I'm saying Jesus is not enough, that is a lie from the pit of hell. The gospel is simple. It is Jesus only, not Jesus plus. Anything that is Jesus plus is legalism. And there are so many in our pulpits today telling you, you need to believe in Jesus plus. You need to do something else. Where is Satan espousing his philosophy of rationalism? Where is he saying, you surely won't die? In our pulpits. In U.S. News and World Report, they carried an article about present-day perspectives on hell. And in it, they quote Reverend Mary Krause, pastor of Dunbarton United Methodist Church in Washington, D.C. She said, quote, My congregation would be stunned to hear a sermon on hell. Her parishioners, she says, are upper-middle-class, well-educated, critical thinkers who view God as compassionate and loving, not someone who is going to push them into eternal damnation. Did you get that? They're critical thinkers, so they would be stunned if she didn't give them rationalism. You surely won't die. Reverend Avery Dulles, theology professor at Fordham University in New York, said it more subtly. He said, hell is there and ready to receive anyone who meets the condition for falling into it. Sounds pretty good so far. Hell is there and ready to receive anyone who meets the condition for falling into it, but it's quite possible that no one will really go there. You surely shall not die. Rationalism. And then where is Satan espousing his philosophy of humanism? Where is he making the statement, you'll be like God? In our pulpits. If you listen carefully to men like Norman Vincent Peale and Robert Schuller. When you dissect their message, what you have is humanism packaging God talk. Believing in yourself, fulfilling your potential, positive thinking, possibility thinking, rising above mere creaturehood, the very thing that Satan was telling Eve a long time ago, humanism. Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. And the seat of his activity is in the pulpits of our churches. And Paul is warning against that in this passage. And I love the fact that he closes this passage with a sobering refrain in verse 15. He said, Whose end will be according to to their deeds. 
God the judge is not deceived by their disguise. And their judgment is not going to be based on what they look like or what they claim. Their judgment will be based upon their deeds. Not what they pretend to do, but what they really do. So Paul pulls the mask off and he pointedly portrays these men for what they really are behind the disguise that says they're apostles of Christ, behind the disguise that says they are servants of righteousness, they are false apostles and deceitful workers. So in the drama of life, the challenge to us today is know your characters. Understand that the antagonist is Satan. See through the disguises of his servants and follow those who are true servants of Christ, whose message is a simple and pure message of devotion to Jesus Christ and whose motive is humble love. Follow those people who are jealous for you to see you ready for the bridegroom when he comes back. Now, one thing I didn't mention that I just want to throw in here at the end is Who is the protagonist? Who is the hero? You know, that's the beauty even a small child can tell you because it's so simple. It's the typical Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. We're going to close our service by taking communion because you know what the climax of the story is? It's the cross. I love the old westerns. You'd have a guy about to be hung, and he'd be there with a rope around his neck. And what you knew what was going to happen, but I loved to watch it anyway. And the good guy would ride up, and he would shoot the rope and set the guy free. But in the story of the gospel, Jesus doesn't just shoot the rope and set us free. He takes our place because the cross is our place because of our sin against God. We deserve the cross. Jesus came and took the cross in our place in order to set us free, in order to make us that pure virgin bride ready for his return. If you've never come to faith in him, I invite you today to surrender your life to him. If you have, we're going to celebrate that together as we close our service. Take simple bread and cup, remembering the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus who made it possible for us to have this kind of amazing relationship with him. Let's pray, and then you're welcome to take communion together. Father, thank you that in a world full of lies and deceit, that you have such a simple message that a five-year-old can understand. It's not hard to understand. It's just difficult to humble our hearts and receive because it involves us letting go of everything else. Letting go of our own minds and our own thoughts, our own actions, our own good deeds. Putting those things aside, letting those things go and embracing Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. And Father, as we close our service today and we reflect on the bread and the cup, we take it in our mouth, we think of the cross, we pray that you would truly bring our minds into focus, that there's only one thing that matters, and that's 
simple and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. Father, cause that to be our focus as we leave here today, that we would truly be people who are ready for the wedding when you come back. We thank you in Jesus' name.